So open your Bibles to John chapter 10. Let's go ahead and pray. Great and Holy Father, thank you so much for being our God. By your own decision, by your own will, you decided to make us your people and to make yourself to be our God. And Father, we thank you so much that you didn't leave us as orphans, that you didn't leave us in darkness, that you didn't leave us in our sin, but that by the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, you paid for our sin, and you adopted us as your own children, and you brought us into the light of your dear Son, and that you've given us the amazing privilege of declaring your glory and your majesty throughout the entire world. And Father, it's your glory and majesty that we want to see this morning as we look into your word and as we reflect upon the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and peer into the words that he spoke that we might see true wisdom and receive true guidance to navigate our way through this world in which you've called us to live. And Father, we do recognize this morning that it is a hard world to live in and that these lives that we have are hard lives to live. We have many trials and circumstances and hindrances and sins that we're still dealing with. And we still have our enemy Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion wanting to devour each one of us. But Father, we praise you. And we thank you that you've given us the security and the courage to know that you will never let us go and you will never give our enemies victory over our souls. And so, Father, we look to your word this morning so that we might know how to live in this world, that we might know how to glorify you, that our shields of faith might be strengthened by your word and that our swords of your word might be sharpened that we might be able to go out into this world with defense and with offense so that your glory might be made known to all. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John chapter 10 in verse 22. It's a Go ahead and read along with me. We're going to read the remainder of the chapter. It's quite a big text this morning, but um, we're going to work our way through it. And so the narrative starts in verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews there gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe me because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods? And if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, uh, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe, believe though, where am I at? I am so sorry. But I, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed him there. Now, this story that we just read, it follows right on the tail of what we considered last week, which was that Jesus is the door and that Jesus is the good shepherd. And so the, the book of John, the gospel of John, it kind of works through a series of seven I am statements from Jesus. And we've already been through four of them. Jesus said, I am the bread. Jesus said, I am the, um, the light. He said that I am the good shepherd. I'm the door. And eventually he'll say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He'll say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And finally he'll say, I am the vine. And all of these I am statements have this rich theological, might I say baggage, or this rich theological um significance to it. It's going all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 where Moses was encountering God and God was like, you know, Moses, I want you to go, you know, to Pharaoh and into Egypt and set my people free. And Moses like, well, who should I say is the one who sent me? And God's like, just say to them, I am that I am. That's the divine name that God revealed to Moses. It's essentially, well, it's the same word we use for Jehovah or, or Yahweh. It's God's own covenant name. And Jesus, picking up on this theological heritage that this phrase I am has with it, he, he brings that into his own ministry. And so part of his declaration to everybody that he spoke to was that he was the great I am. That he is the good shepherd. And so when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's just adding a, a, a characteristic or a dynamic to the I am statement from Exodus chapter 3. And so what, what all that means is that when we're looking at this passage that we just read, it's adding this theological significance to the previous I am statements. So Jesus just got done saying, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd. And now he's adding to that. He's attaching to those two statements that he's God indeed. And this is extremely important to us because if we're just honest, like what good is it to have a door if it can't actually protect us? And how good can a shepherd actually be if the shepherd can't guide us and take care of us? And who in the world can actually do that? You know, like, should we look to anybody less than God to be our door or to anything less than God to be our good shepherd? 
And of course, the answer is absolutely not. And so if Jesus is really going to be the door, if he really is going to be the shepherd, then he must be God. And then he can truly be one who we can trust in and put all of our confidence in and have joy and security. And so that's the main idea of this entire text. I know it's long and everything, but that's the whole point. The whole point is to show us that Jesus is the God who will never let his sheep be snatched out of his hand because he is the door and because he is the shepherd. And so, but it's interesting how this all unfolds. This is a couple months after the, the, the I am statements that we looked at last week. This is a little bit of time has transpired in, in Jesus' life. And so John starts this in, um, in verse 22, where he says, at that, at that time, it was the feast of the dedication. So at first you're like, well, this is just some, you know, some pointless information. Like, what, what, what does it mean? It was at the, the temple or the, the feast of the dedication, that it was winter, that Jesus was in Solomon's portico. Like, like, what does all that actually mean? Why not just go right into it when the Jews are like, hey, Jesus, if you're actually the Christ, just tell us. Like, what's the point in giving us all this added information? But like that is, this added information is extremely important because why in the world does Jesus start talking about sheep snatching and all of that? Like, what brought Jesus to this point of saying, I keep my sheep, no one can snatch them out of my hand? Well, what was going, it was what was going on in the, the Jewish mind at the time. See, this feast of the dedication is the exact same thing as Hanukkah. And I didn't know that till like just the other day. <laughs> This is Hanukkah, but what's Hanukkah? I still don't really know what Hanukkah is until I just studied all of this stuff. And so this is what happened. In the intertestamental period, like about 165 years or so before Jesus came into the world, there was a whole lot of political changes that took place with Israel. And one of the things that happened is Israel completely lost their independence as a nation. And so they got conquered and ruined and, and their religion got, got all messed up. And this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, which is just a really weird guy. Like the word Epiphanes is a title that he added to himself. It means the illustrious or God manifest. Like what kind of a narcissist who just add Billy the Magnificent or Billy the illustrious? It just kind of sounds like what's wrong with this guy? But it really shows what kind of a man he was. His main goal in, in his rulership was to try to make all the Jewish people Greek. Like functionally Greek, that they would worship Greek gods and practice Greek religion and speak Greek and all kinds of stuff. All of which ultimately, you know, paved the way for the perfect time for Jesus to come. But totally different story. But Antiochus wanted to make all the Jewish people Greek. And so he went ahead and erected a statue of Zeus in the temple which was just a big no-no. For Jewish people, you just don't do that. That's, that's one of the worst things that you could possibly do to them. And then, to make it worse, he sacrificed a pig on the altar, which is just, that was the end of it. And so they had enough, the Jewish people had enough, and they were like, look, we got to do something about this guy. Like, they saw in Antiochus Epiphanes, they saw the, the, the prophecies of Daniel and the desolation, the abomination of desolation actually taking place. And so they thought, look, we got to do something. And so there's this guy named Judas Maccabees who got raised up, and he was actually a pretty cool dude. And he started this small little army, and they single-handedly took down Antiochus and like reclaimed Jewish independence, and everything was wonderful. And that was the beginning of Hanukkah. That was how it happened. And so what they did, as soon as they won their independence, they went into the temple and took out Zeus and cleaned the altar and sanctified everything, and they called it the Feast of the Dedication. And that's exactly what they're celebrating here. So here you have these Jewish people several hundred years later, and they are under the occupation of Rome. 
They don't have their independence. They don't have a nation. They have Rome meddling with every little thing going on. And Rome was messing with the priesthood. They appointed a, their own Jewish king to be king, which was Herod. So basically, these Jewish people, they, they didn't have what they used to have. The great nation of David and the kingdom of Solomon was completely part of the past. It was part of the history. Like Jerusalem, Israel was not what it used to be. And yet, here you have all these Jewish people in Jesus' day with this nostalgia saying, what about the good old days? Like, when can we have our independence back? Where, where, when is another Judas Maccabees going to rise up and deliver us from this Roman occupation? When is this going to happen? And then here Jesus is walking in this this portico of Solomon, which just added more to it. The, the Solomon's portico was the only thing left over from Solomon's temple. Like it was the only remnant from the good old days. So all these Jewish people are all hanging out, and the only thing left from the Davidic kingdom, and they're all like. Man, we really wish it was like that again. Where's our Messiah? Where's the Christ at? And then, there you have Jesus. And so, that's kind of like what was going on in the mind of all of the Jews while this conversation unfolded, which is gives us a picture or a window into what the Jews at this time wanted more than anything in the world. They wanted their earthly kingdom back. And so, in verse 42, when it says, the Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. Like, at first you read that, you're like, yes, that's not a bad question, you know? Like, Jesus, are you actually the Messiah? I would like to know, because if so, I will believe in you. Like, it sounds like a really good question to ask. And and and, and then, depending on how you mean it, if you're asking it today, it's a good question. But these people didn't... They weren't asking it the right way. They had There was three problems going on in the Jewish mind. First, they already had a preconceived idea about who the Messiah was. So when they're saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? They, did, they weren't thinking about Jesus. They weren't thinking about God's definition of who the Messiah was. They were thinking about their own definition of who the Messiah was. They already created their own Messiah in their mind. And then they're saying, Jesus, are you the one who we've been planning on to come? So that was their first thing. They had a preconceived idea of who the Messiah actually was. And so I was just thinking about that. You know, this is something that, that, that people do all the time today. They come to Jesus with their own preconceived ideas of who Jesus actually is. Like they don't let God's word speak for itself. They don't go into the scripture and say, who is the Messiah? Who is Jesus? And they let that inform who Jesus actually is. And then they go and put their faith in that particular Jesus, the one who the scriptures reveal. A lot of people don't do that. They come with their own preconceived understanding of who Jesus is. And then that's the one who they want to follow or that's the one who they want to object to. It happens all the time. And, and, and the big thing for us to keep in mind here is that if we're actually going to believe in Jesus, let's make sure it's actually the Jesus that the Bible reveals and not some Jesus that we learned about from culture or Christian heritage or any of those kinds of things. It's very deceiving. The other thing that these Jewish people were making a mistake in here was that they were trying to... They didn't really appreciate what their true hazards were. You see, people want to create a God in the image of their own greatest need. You see, their greatest need was that we want to have David's kingdom back. We want to have our independence back. That was the greatest thing that, that, that they could ever ask for. And if you did ask one of the Jewish people out in the street of that day, if you could have anything in the world right now, it would be like, man, we want David back. We want that kingdom back where silver was completely useless because there was so much gold around. Like We want to have that old glory back. That's what they wanted. And so naturally, they created a God in the likeness of their own greatest need. 
And you see this like in, in ancient history, if you just think about these, you know, the fertility goddesses and the gods of war and all the stuff that ancient pagans would come up with. And it makes sense. Like they needed agriculture and they needed babies and they needed, you know, grain. And so why not create a god that can give you all that stuff? And that they needed protection from marauding neighboring kingdoms. And so why not create a god who can, who can give you victory in war? And, and, and again, this is another thing that people do today. We look at our own greatest needs, and then we create a God that can fulfill that need. And so this is one of the problems with, um, with a lot of the you know, drug abuse programs and stuff like that. The people in those programs, they just want sobriety more than anything in the world. That's their greatest need, is sobriety. There's no doubt it's a great thing to go for, but if that's the only thing in this world that you want then you're only going to have a God who can give you sobriety, not a God that can give you salvation, not a God that can remove wrath. Like, Just be extremely careful that you're analyzing what is your greatest need. And, and this is the delusion that, that all of humanity is under. They never really know what their greatest need is. They always think their greatest need is something else. Really, our greatest need is to be reconciled with God. That's our greatest need. We're all guilty of sin. We're all under the wrath of God. And we need a Savior who will deliver us from His wrath. Not from Rome or from, you know, whatever political party we're afraid of or any of these different things. We actually need a God who will, re- who will deliver us from His own wrath. And that, that leads us to the third problem that they have. They didn't actually assess what their greatest danger was. There's no doubt that a Roman occupation was totally dangerous, but there was a greater threat, and that was an angry God. That was the worst thing that they could have possibly encountered, and yet they didn't even consider that as a risk. And I'm thinking back to the flood of 2016, where there was quite a few different people who encountered all kinds of different situations, but I've heard lots of stories about people who saw the floodwaters coming into their house, and they thought, oh, my furniture. And they started picking up their furniture, not actually analyzing the greatest threat, which was going to be their lives, because the water wasn't just coming in six feet. It was going to come in so much that they couldn't escape. But they weren't thinking about that hazard. That was far from their mind. All they could think about was their furniture. And so while their neighbors were like, let's get out of the neighborhood. We need to get to high ground. And they're just taking off and leaving their furniture behind. Some people were like, you know what? Let's just get our furniture up. That's a nice sofa. Let's get our TV up in the attic. Let's get all of our family photos where they need to be. And and I understand all of that. But what happened is they didn't actually analyze where the true danger was. And then it got to be where it was too late. And the water was coming in, and now they're climbing into their attics trying to break a hole in their roof because they never actually analyzed what their greatest danger was, and so they didn't seek the right salvation. It's the same thing that the Jews were doing in this day. Their greatest danger in their mind was Rome, but really their greatest danger was God, and had they actually known that they need to be saved from their sin and from the consequence of their sin, from the righteous judgment of God, they would have totally not cared about Rome. They would have actually cared about God and they would have said, Jesus, are you the Messiah who takes away our sins? Or are you the Maccabees who's going to deliver us from the Roman occupation? Two totally different questions. And for us all of here today, we need to think about this. This is extremely important. If you're sitting in the position where you're actually wondering, is Jesus the Christ? Then you need to ask yourself, what are you actually asking? What is your greatest fears? What do you want Jesus to save you from? 
These are all extremely important questions. And if you answer anything other than you want to be saved from the wrath of God on account of your sin, well, then you're going to end up with a Jesus that's actually not the real Jesus, a salvation that doesn't actually save. And so make sure that you're analyzing and you're really looking into what it is that you're asking of Jesus. But I really appreciate the way that Jesus answers this question because look at him. He actually does answer their need. It's really, it's really awesome. He says, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify about me. Like Jesus is like saying, hey, look, I already told you guys this. I already answered the question. Why do you keep asking me the same question? I've already answered, answered this question for you. But how did Jesus answer the question? Did you, did you guys ever catch that when you were reading through and, and, and studying through John, how Jesus answered this question? He answered this question by his works. Every single thing that Jesus did was meticulously calculated to reveal something about the nature of what the Messiah was going to do. Like John only records a handful of miracles. Every single miracle John records tells us something unique and special about Jesus. Every single one. In other words, he's saying, guys, if you had heard my words, you would have already got it. But if you actually had eyes to see and saw what I've done, you would believe me. You would already know. And this makes me think about people today. You know, like, there probably is some people today saying, hey, actually, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And they're asking for legitimate reasons, and they really want to be saved, and they're wondering, you know, how can I know, Jesus, that you're actually Jesus, that you're actually the Messiah? And and Jesus' answer to you is the exact same that it was to the people that he was speaking to at this time. He says, you should believe because the works that I do in my Father's name. I'm sure some of you are thinking, what, I need to think back to like all that stuff that Jesus did in like the first century? Like, I have to go back that far in history to know that Jesus is actually the Christ? Well, that's a good place to start, but you don't have to just end there. Jesus is constantly actively working in the lives of his people right now. Like, that's the amazing thing about it. I know that there's a God in heaven, and I know that Jesus Christ died for sinners because he's actually saving sinners. Like, you can look over, just think about people that you know and how they've been converted and changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's no earthly explanation for it. How in the world can somebody who, who hated God with such animosity now love Him with all of their heart? Like, think about Paul, this, this great enemy of the church who went around persecuting Christians and actually held the coat so people could stone Stephen and, and, and murder him. And then here Paul is wanting to go and persecute more Christians around the world and he gets knocked off his horse and he becomes the greatest advocate for Christianity. Like most of the New Testament was written by this man and scholars today still can't figure out why he changed his mind. They're baffled. But the same thing could be said about everybody in here who's a Christian. People who actually know you who are not Christians are probably baffled why you are who you are now. There's no earthly explanation for it because Jesus is actively working in the lives of his people. And so this is the thing. You, you, you meet somebody and they're like, just tell me, is Jesus actually the Christ? You're like, my brother, my sister next to me, this is proof that Jesus is actually the Christ. And this is a great burden and duty for all of us as Christians to actually act like Christians. You know, it's sad. Like, well, how about this? We should be able to go and point to our neighbor, who, who our brother or sister in Christ, and say, this is the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, we should be able to do that. In other words, everybody in here should be living a life that really demonstrates the glory of Christ and the, the image of God to such a degree that, that it can't be explained in any earthly way. We should all be living that life so that any one of you in here can point to Billy Como and say, 
That's evidence that Jesus Christ is actually the Messiah. And how should we be living as Christians? I'm afraid that that far too many of us don't actually live like Christians. Far too many of us can't be the evidence that that Jesus is the Messiah because we look too much like the world. Think too much like the world. Talk too much like the world. Take the same concerns of the world, getting tied up in all of the political discussions and social concerns and all this stuff. It's as though our, our hope is only here in this world. This is the only thing that we care about. There's no such thing as heaven. There's no such thing as, as a Messiah, as a Savior. Like, like our minds or sometimes our conversation don't reflect that our hope's in heaven. Sometimes that's the case for Christians. And how many Christians can you actually point to and say, that right there is evidence that Jesus exists, that Jesus is the Messiah? And are you that evidence today? Can you honestly say, Billy, next time you're doing some evangelism and whatever, like you can point to me. I'm evidence. That's a challenge for us all. Just make sure that that's where we're at because this is where Jesus went with his evidences. He said, you'll know that I'm the Messiah because you can see the works that I'm doing in my Father's name. That's the way that you're going to know. And that would have meant something to these people back then because people have been receiving their sight and lame were walking and Jesus was casting out demons and forgiving sin. They would have all had tangible miracles to look at. And every single one of us who's a Christian is a tangible miracle today that we can all point to to show people that Jesus is the Messiah who most certainly saves. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you guys are right, I'm the Messiah. Like, you notice how he didn't actually answer their question? He said, I already told you, if you saw my works, you would know. But notice how Jesus didn't actually tell them plainly. That's what they wanted. Please tell me plainly, sir. And he was like, oh, I will tell you the way that I want to tell you. Why didn't he tell them plainly? Because they had a their title or their understanding of who Christ was was the wrong Christ. And if he was to say, I am the Christ, I'll tell you plainly, I am he, just like he did the Samaritan woman. Like if he actually did that to these people, they would have put a sword in his hand and they would have said, off to kill Caesar. In other words, Jesus was not letting himself become the poster child of their own political and social agendas. He was making sure that he drew a clear line between their earthly agendas and his heavenly agenda. He wasn't taking sides. He knew what they wanted. They wanted a Judas Maccabees. And he's not a Judas Maccabees. He's not saving people from Rome. And so he would not let himself be drawn into their, to, to, to their earthly agendas. He made sure to distance himself from that. And the only reason why I mention this is because we do this all the time. We like to stamp Jesus' name on all kinds of social agendas and political agendas that we have. I think about Westboro Baptist Church. And if you don't know who they are, well then, I'm surprised. The ones who go around and, and picket, you know, gay pride parties and, or, or parades and they go to the, you know, funerals of, of, of veterans and, and, and protest. And just, that's not the gospel. God doesn't approve of homosexuality, but Jesus is not sitting there saying, I hate gays. And that's an extreme example. But we like to do the same thing because we want to add legitimacy to the things that we that we stand for. And a lot of times we just stamp Jesus' name on our political party or on our social agenda. And what we're doing is we're totally blurring the actual message and mission of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to make Republicans, you know, the the, the majority in the House or any of this other kind of stuff. That's not what Jesus came from. He, he, he doesn't like it when people endorse presidents in the name of God and in the name of the gospel. These are not things that Jesus wants us to do. 
And he intentionally set himself apart from all of that so that the gospel mission was what everybody knew he was about. And so let's not weaken the message or confuse the message by bringing Jesus' name or bringing these kinds of stamping his authority on the things that we think are important here in this world. To be heavenly minded is the most important thing for us to be as Christians. All these other things, as important as they are, have to be secondary. They just have to be. And so Jesus says, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. I'm in verse 26. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is, gr- is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Now, why in the world did Jesus go to talk about this at this point in time? Like, there's a lot of things he could have went to go do to show that he was God and that he was equal with God. He could have done a lot of different things. Why did he go talk about this? No one can snatch the sheep out of my father's hand. Like, why did he mention this? In other words... Why did he go back and start talking about the security of his people? It's because this is what these people wanted more than anything. The Jewish audience that he was speaking to wanted security so desperately. They just thought their security was in a Judas Maccabees figure. They thought their security was in getting rid of the Roman occupation. That's where they thought their security was at. And Jesus is saying, no, I actually give true security. You see, you see, he's, he's meeting the needs of the people he, that he's speaking to. Only he's showing them that their needs are far deeper than what they could have ever even imagined. And Jesus is saying that no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father is greater than all. And no, and he's given them to me and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Just before we look at the truth of that and what kind of security that should give us as Christians, let's just keep in mind that what Jesus is saying is he's bringing our greatest needs and he's bringing what we perceive to be the greatest danger well beyond the realm of this world. He's bringing in the total omnipotence of God as your total protection. And what in the world, what what threat could we possibly face that needs the omnipotence of God to protect us from it? So what Jesus is saying is like, think about how God created this world out of nothing. He said, let there be, and then there was. And he looked at the waters, and he's like, here's your boundary. You're going to go no further. And he looks out to the stars, and he looks out to the galaxies, and God says, here's your orbits. You're not going to stray from these orbits. The power of black holes and these things are right in the hands of God, and God has perfectly and masterfully and completely and totally brought all of these things into his sovereign control and power. And Jesus is saying, that power is what's invested in the security of the sheep. What in the world could possibly be that great of a threat? And this is where Jesus is going with this. It's our sin. Sin's the only thing that can separate us from the love of God if we're outside of Christ. That's the only thing. That's the only thing we need to be concerned with. If you care about anything other than your own salvation, and I'm afraid you set your, you valued your life far too less. But there's some of us here and many of us here today who are actually in Christ. And this right here is the most precious thing that we have here because nothing can snatch us out of the hand of God. Jesus or God, the Father who is all-powerful, He's holding you so tightly that you can't be taken away from Him. And then He goes and hands you over into Jesus' hands and the implication is that Jesus is just as powerful as the Father and so no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hands. You're secure. You don't have any more reason to fear. You don't have to care about, be so concerned and anxious over the things that happen down here in this world. As important as they are, that's not our security. 
It's only in Jesus. And your sin, it can't separate you from God. And we've all experienced this. How many of us in here have actually, you know, sinned and then were afraid to approach God afterwards? Me, me too. Me too. I sin and then like, I feel like I need to pray and confess that sin. I'm like, I can't come before God right now. I'm dirty. You know, I want to hide. That's because I don't fully appreciate what this text is teaching me. This text is teaching me that my sin can't even separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And that's the whole point of it. There's so much security in here that you can't even separate yourself from His love. His love's not contingent upon you. It's contingent upon His own sovereign power. And Jesus is saying, nothing can, you can't thwart that. You just can't. You're totally safe. And so anyways, the, the, the way the Jews took this, they're like, wait a minute. You're saying that you're God. Like of all the things that they could hear, this is what they heard. Like Jesus didn't outright say that I'm God here. Like he just didn't, he wasn't that clear. He didn't say that plainly. Like it's plainly taught, but it's not plainly stated. And yet they picked up on this, but they couldn't pick up that he was the Christ. It's like selective hearing. Not a very good thing, but they definitely had the selective hearing. And so the Jews picked up stones in verse 31, and they went and they answered him. Um, sorry, they went to stone him, and then Jesus answered them. Uh, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? Like, I, 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 I sense a little bit of sarcasm in Jesus' voice there. You know, he's like, wait, I've never done anything wrong. So if you're going to stone me, it must be for one of my good works. What are you stoning me for? What good work have I done that's going to warrant the stone? And of course, they're like, good works? We're not stoning you for any of your good works. We're stoning you for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. In other words, they're saying, we got the point. You're saying that you do the same things that God does. That makes you equal with God, and therefore you're guilty of blasphemy. And so you have to be stoned today. And then this is where Jesus answers them. And this isn't. This also is another challenging text, but he says, um, Has it not been written in your law that I said you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God uh, came and the scriptures can't be broken... Then why do you say of him whom the Father is sanctified and said into the world, you are blaspheming because I said that I am the Son of God? Like, what's going on here? Well, basically, Jesus is taking them. First, he's using authority that they've already accepted. They accept the Mosaic, um, the Old Testament. They accepted the all the, the, the law and the prophets. This is all authoritative information to them. This is their standard. This is their guide. There was no greater authority that Jesus could have appealed to. And so he's like, wait, you guys already accept every single word in the Old Testament. Did you forget about Psalm 82, verse 6, where God said to mere men that you guys are gods? And just go back and read Psalm 82. We don't, we don't have time to do it today, but it's a really interesting psalm. But basically, what God's doing is he's, he's rebuking earthly judges, and there's some variance in interpretation there, but it seems to be earthly judges for abusing their power. In other words, the Bible clearly teaches that God establishes governments and judges and, and different authorities down here in this world, and he gives them a certain level of, of, of influence and authority to execute judgment and to make sure justice takes place. That's his, that's the, the, the task that he's called them to. And since he's given them this task, God's saying, I can call you God's, lowercase g. And it's just the terminology that, that God used in Psalm 8. There's, don't make too much out of it, but the point here is that they accepted this terminology. This is terminology that the Jewish people accepted. They didn't read Psalm 82 and like want to stone verse 6. Like that didn't happen. They just read it and they're like, hey, this is, uh, 
This is God's word. It can't be broken. We accept that. And Jesus is telling them, well, wait a minute. You guys are so inconsistent. You accept this passage, but you're just reviling against me because I said that I'm the son of God. Like who's greater? Me or these earthly judges? I'm greater. And that's when he says, um, where am I at? Where he says, um, in verse 36, whom the father sanctified and set into this world. Like, God looked at the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and He said, you're going to go into the world and you're going to be the Redeemer of all of my people and you're going and, and, and I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to sanctify you for this task and you're going to go into the world and you're going to perform this work for me. Like That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who God has sent into this world and sanctified for this particular task. In other words, him and these judges are very much alike, only Jesus has a greater task. And so if it was okay to call these judges small g gods, then it must also be okay for Jesus to call himself God. All he's doing is talking about terminology here. And he's showing the inconsistency of the Jews. And so um, Jesus goes on and he says in verse 38... Um, in verse 37, but if I do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and that I'm in the father. And the biggest thing for us to hold, to keep on here or to, to keep in mind here is that we, we, we can't be the kind of people who just pick and choose our favorite passages and then just reject the other ones. Far too many people have a theology built on my favorite text. And then they just won't let the other portions of the Bible inform their theology, inform their understanding of Scripture. It has to be a total package here. You can't pick and choose. There's no Jefferson Bibles here. We have to make sure that we're taking the whole Word of God and interpreting the whole Word of God so we have a complete message of God or else we don't know God at all. And this was the problem the Jews were making. They were being far too selective in the way that they understood Scripture, and they failed to apply the meaning of Scripture to everyday life, which is why they objected to Jesus. And we can all do the exact same thing, and let's make sure that we don't. And so Jesus is saying that I'm in the Father, and that the Father is in me. Now that right there is what I want us all to go home thinking about and holding on to in light of our salvation that God has wrought for us. It's a true and a complete salvation. It's an eternal salvation. It's a salvation that gives us everlasting life and it gives us joy and peace and confidence. And we shouldn't be a people that are, that are scared and terrified of the world in which we live, afraid of, of circumstances, scared to, to actually be Christians. Christians, because of this text, should be the most courageous people this world's ever known. For Christians are the only people in this world who can't be conquered. We have an omnipotence that goes behind us that, that, that should fortify us and give us courage to press on. I don't know if you guys ever watched the Jurassic Park 3, but I remember, I'm thinking about the very end when the little baby T-Rex is in the boat and he's encountering the, the, the man and the baby T-Rex is absolutely terrified of the man until he sees the big daddy T-Rex in the background and the little baby just gets all kinds of courage like, oh, I got power behind me now. And the end is gruesome and so we won't go any farther than that. It's the same picture. Well, maybe not a gruesome end. But when you know that, that God in all of his omnipotence is standing behind your salvation and standing behind your security, there's not an enemy that can beat you. You just, you cannot be conquered. 
So don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't let fear rule your life. Because it'll ruin your life. Our salvation gives us so much to enjoy here in this world. And courage is most certainly one of them. And so let's not live in fear and trepidation. But let's honor God through taking security in what it is that He's promised and what it is that He's accomplished for us. And that's our salvation. He saved us from the greatest enemy, which is His own wrath. And so now there's nothing left to fear. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for for showing us how much You love us. For teaching us that You're constantly our protection and constantly our power. And I thank You that we don't have to rely upon our own strength. We don't have to rely upon our own courage. But that You're with us in everything that we do. It truly is an amazing thing that You've made Yourself to be our God. And I don't think that we ever fully appreciate the full meaning of what that is. That You, the God that created this world, full of wisdom, full of power, full of love, ever-present, all-knowing, invested Yourself 100% and completely into our lives. And Father, I pray that You would help us to appreciate this so that we might demonstrate Your character through our lives so that those who don't know Jesus might be able to see who Jesus is through Your work inside of us. In Jesus' name, Amen.